This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. This episode is brought to you by Jinx, the superfood-powered dog kibble everyone's been talking about. See the results for yourself and try their one-month transformation. Within the first few weeks, you'll see how Jinx can help with your dog's energy, mood, and even digestion. And it's all thanks to the high-quality ingredients they use, like organic chicken, Atlantic salmon, and grass-fed beef. Try the one-month transformation today. Find Jinx in your local Walmart. At Popular Science, we report and write dozens of science and tech stories every week. And while most of the stuff we stumble across makes it into our articles, we also find plenty of weird facts that we just keep around the office. So we figured, why not share those with you? Welcome to The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week from the editors of Popular Science. I'm Rachel Feltman. I'm Sarah Kylie Watson. And I'm Divya Anandraman. Divya, welcome to the show. It's so great to have you. Yay, thank you so much for having me. Um, as I said before, I am I'm a huge fan of the show, so I'm super excited to be on. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much. That means a lot. Um, I'm a big fan of of your work, but for listeners who who don't know, why don't you uh, share a little bit about the weird and awesome stuff that you do? Happily. Um, so I work as a professional taxidermist um, here in New York City. And um, I specialize in birds. Um, birds are, you know, some of my favorite, like just some of my favorite like creatures on this planet. Um, and also in the scope of my work, you know, birds really like they really connect me to nature. And that's sort of like my approach to taxidermy. It's all about that connection to nature and our mortality and and art and stuff like that. Awesome. And I'll ask you this again at the end of the show, but um, where can our listeners find you? Oh, yes. So um, listeners can find me on social media like Instagram um, at Gotham Taxidermy. And I have a website as well, which is GothamTaxidermy.com. Amazing. Um, Well, we'll get into the show in just a second. But first, I just want to let listeners know, since we're getting to the end of 2023, um, there, there have been some shifts uh, at the the parent company of Popsi, and it's looking like uh, hopefully weirdest thing is is not uh, going the way of the dodo. But we're still figuring out the details of that arrangement. In the meantime, I would strongly urge all listeners to. Uh, Follow Jess on Twitch if you're on Twitch uh, to subscribe to either my Patreon or my Substack. You can find links to both on my website, which you can find in the show notes. It's all Googleable because uh, that's where you'll see updates from us. If, uh, you know, weirdest thing has to hibernate a little bit, uh, if we're not in your feeds for a while. And we do other stuff, too. So we we'd love to have you there. I have free tiers on Patreon and Substack, so no buy-in necessary. Just follow me there to uh, get all the updates we can provide about the future of Weirdest Thing, which uh, hopefully has a a lot of life left in her yet. Uh, But for now, we are here to do the thing. So on the Weirdest Thing I Learned this week, 
We start by each offering up a tease about some kind of fact or story that we found in the course of reading, writing, reporting, making taxidermy, etc., and decide which one we just absolutely have to hear more about first. Then, once we've all had time to spin our little science yarns, we reconvene and decide what the weirdest thing we learned this week actually was. Except not really. We're all winners here. Will I finally rewrite the intro if we go to a monthly schedule? Maybe. I don't know. Change doesn't have to be bad. Follow my Substack and Patreon. I don't want to lose you all. Anyway, Sarah Kylie, what's your tease? All right. Amazing. <laughs> um, my tease is that I'm here to tell you the story of the time when Dutch people ate their own prime minister. Well, we were just talking about how you don't have a Trader Joe's in the Netherlands. So that's what happens when you, no, I don't. When you wow, take they really go people's <laughs> seasonal snacks. Like, this is what happens when you don't have the chocolate almonds, the salty chocolate yeah. almonds. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Literally. It's a slippery slope. Like everyone got tired. Everyone got tired of Stroop waffles for a minute there in the 1600s, but um, um, more fun stuff to come about that. Great. I can't wait to hear more about that. Um, Diffie, what's your tease? Um, my tease is that a taxidermist who is barely remembered by history and who also happens to be one of the few black taxidermists that we know of had a really big impact on a very famously remembered part of science history. And, um, of course, I'm talking about John Edmundstone and Charles Darwin and the theory of evolution. Ooh, Ooh. I love that. Um, mine is also related to evolution. Um, I want to talk about uh, the fact that chimps go through menopause, which is a surprise to scientists um, and relates back to many things we've talked about on Weirdest Thing previously. Um, I think I'm going to start because I like to, when we have two animal stories, I like to sandwich the cannibalism story you know between them <laughs> so cannibal animal sandwich yeah, yeah. today um <laughs> so um like having hair on just the top of your head as we've discussed or engaging in capitalism menopause is like one of those rare traits that's like actually very unique to humans most of the things we do it's like we're animals baby uh but some of the stuff we do is genuinely very weird. Uh, menopause is one of those things. Uh, up until now, there were just four other species that had been shown to live much longer than they can reproduce. Um, they're all mammals, but except for us, they all live in the ocean. They were beluga whales, narwhals, orcas, and short-finned pilot whales. So some nice toothy, toothy whale ladies also experience the change. Uh, but a new study finds evidence that a sixth species does this. And unsurprisingly, it's one very close to us on the evolutionary tree. Of course, I'm talking about chimps uh, tied with bonobos for our closest relatives. Woo! So <laughs> menopause, <laughs> hooray for chimps. Um, yeah, yeah, chimps. chimps. <laughs> menopause, as we know it in humans, um, it has to follow a couple of rules. It's one of those things where it's like, what do we mean when we say that only these species experience menopause? Um, as we discussed on our episode with Rachel Gross, menstruation is really rare. So like if you tie menopause directly to the idea of like menstruation ceases, then obviously very few species are capable of it because humans are like very unusual in the fact that they have this shedding uh, and expulsion of the uterine lining. Uh, but 
there are a couple of like other rules to keep in mind when you're talking about spotting menopause in other animals. So you have to see like female members of the species become actually incapable of reproduction, not just like less likely to successfully reproduce at an age that comes like some meaningful percentage of their life before death, because obviously time is relative. You know, if a if a mayfly that lived two days was infertile for the last 36 hours of it, you'd be like, how strange. What a long menopause the mayfly has. <laughs> um, that's not a thing mayflies do. But, you know, so it's it's like how much of their life do they spend not able to make babies? Um, because like an animal's body breaking down to the point where it's like not very good at making babies, uh, that's just not quite the thing. That's like reproductive senescence or aging. Um, other animals have reproductive cycles that are like sort of built around their near immediate demise. Like, for example, the great Pacific octopus, uh, females start to experience symptoms like cell deterioration, self-mutilation, loss of appetite, uh, their color dulls, and they start to move in really uncoordinated ways. And that's like as soon as they lay their first and only brood of eggs. Um, so like they don't make any more babies while they're sitting there purposefully starving to death, guarding their eggs, but they're still operating in a biological paradigm where like the point of their continued survival is finishing this one reproductive cycle. So again, not really the thing. And then there's there's this added complication now in talking about menopause because um, in captivity, a lot of animals like live much longer than they do in the wild. They have tons of food. They don't have to worry about predators, you know, whatever. Um, and so occasionally now researchers will be like, well, you know, this animal we see in captivity living X percent of their life past reproductive age. Does that count or is it just a weird one off thing that only happened because we kept them in captivity and we like preserved what should have been, you know, a deteriorating animal? Um Things are obviously different for humans and for those whales I mentioned. Um, like, for example, male orcas generally only live to be 30 or so, uh, but females can live to be 100. And they still tend to stop having calves in their 30s and 40s. So it's like very big chunk of life where making babies is simply not on the table. And like so much of our like very simplistic, like early model of evolution was based on this idea that it all comes down to what makes you more likely to have a lot of babies and have them survive and have your genes be passed on. So um, anything that doesn't involve making babies, uh, scientists historically have been like, what's up with that? Um, <laughs> including, including being queer, which I talk about in my book, like there doesn't need to be an evolutionary reason for being queer because like people have preferences that don't match like what they do reproductively all the time. Um, yeah. However, there are a lot of hypotheses about like ways that having non-reproductive adult humans around in a community would be beneficial. Like there's one called the gay uncle hypothesis that I talk about in my book where it's the idea that just like having um, relatives who can contribute to your upbringing back when people lived in very close-knit societies who weren't like at risk of accidentally having a kid of their own um, was really beneficial, which totally uh, makes sense. Of course, these days 
we don't really live that way. And, you know, your gay uncle probably doesn't like help feed you. Maybe he does. Maybe that's awesome if he does. But it, that that's not the reason he deserves to exist. <laughs> that's a whole other thing. I also talked about that in my book. Been there, done that. Arousing history of sex. Anyway, it's long been assumed that female chimps die off like a few years after their reproductivity drops, um, as is the case for most mammals. But researchers found something different when they spent 21 years observing the Nagogo chimp community in Uganda. Um, and this is a big social group. It's like at any given time, there are like more than 100 chimps living in this community. Um, so it's the biggest one that like scientists have ever reported and observed. Um, people often say it's the biggest one humans have ever seen. But like, I don't I don't know what humans have seen. <laughs> Maybe there was a giant chimp community somewhere that humans palled around with years ago. But anyway, scientists have written <laughs> about this one. And um, their habitat is protected. It's in like a national park situation. And they've become pretty used to human observers without having to deal with like human encroachment. So it's pretty ideal in terms of study where like scientists are able to lurk and like pick up data about them, but no one's coming in and disrupting these chimps. So it's where most of what we know about um, chimp biology and behavior has come from over the last few decades. So after researchers like were anecdotally noticing some like pretty old female chimps hanging around, they were like, "Man, grandma, love that. yeah, yeah, just <laughs> some some old ladies." Love they decided that. they were gonna look into that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, and so they decided to like track mortality and fertility. Um, among 185 females for as long as they could. And they ended up getting uh, like, you know, 21 years of worth of data, um, including some stuff that had previously been recorded. And they found that fertility declined when the animals um, turned 30 and that then none of them gave birth after turning 50. So actually like a very similar timeline to uh, human averages. But generally speaking, like, female chimps tend to die around age 50, or at least that's like what scientists have often observed. But in this group, 16 of the females lived past the age of 50. And on average, they found that about 20% of a female chimp's adulthood happened after fertility went away, which is about half as long as that percentage is in human hunter-gatherers, um, but still like robust for the mammal world. And what's really cool is that then when they analyzed urine samples from a few dozen chimps of various ages, they found that the females experienced um, hormonal shifts that like perfectly mirror human menopause, um, which to my knowledge, I, I was looking for uh, studies on orcas that mentioned hormones and I didn't find any. I know that some researchers are like studying hormones in orcas using their poop but I couldn't find maybe they're working on that paper if so can't wait to read <laughs> it but yeah I couldn't find anything connecting the dots saying like this is what happens in orcas hormonally when menopause uh, occurs so it's very cool that they they found this in chimps and um, of course like you know maybe the chimps in this you know very lush habitat like live freakishly long um and they're the only chimps to ever do this but there's also like a dark side to that hypothesis because 
The researchers also pointed out that like maybe menopause was common in chimps before humans started doing things like logging and spreading disease and poaching and otherwise disrupting their lifespans um, because it it wouldn't be surprising if this came from a common ancestor because we know how closely we're related to chimps. It's possible it evolved separately because um, among the whale species I mentioned, it does seem to have evolved separately a few times. Um, but again, like our our branch off from chimps is so recent that it, it seems like a much simpler hypothesis that it came from a common ancestor. So then it's like maybe chimps used to generally live longer. And it's just that in the time since we've been studying them, we've also been messing up all their shit. So that's yeah. a bummer. What's interesting about this particular study is that the researchers are saying that it is a point against the grandmother hypothesis, which is a lot of people know about from uh, orca research, which is uh, the idea that the reason that menopause exists, that that these female animals like live beyond their productive, their reproductive years, is that it's beneficial to their contribution to the gene pool for them to contribute resources to raising their grandchildren and great grandchildren. So it's like your genetic code is more likely to persist if not if you're not just having kids, but you're also making sure that those kids have kids, et cetera, so that like there is a benefit to not having more of your own babies, but sticking around to help raise future generations. And the reason this doesn't really work for chimps is because um, daughters don't stick around. Adult female chimps tend to move to a different family when they reach sexual maturity. Um, and the kids are also raised very communally. So there also really isn't a genetic incentive for primates to like favor their grandchildren with more food. Um, but there's another related idea that's like not mutually exclusive to the grandmother hypothesis, which is that menopause is beneficial because females stop reproducing so that they aren't competing with young females who are just starting to breed. So it's kind of it's interesting because like as someone who doesn't study like chimp behavior or like animal behavior or evolutionary biology, <laughs> those two things don't sound very different to me. <laughs> but I think it kind of comes down yeah. to like the intentionality, I guess. It's like it's not like you're literally... It, okay, it doesn't come down to the intentionality. I feel like a bunch of evolutionary biologists just like keeled over because I said that. But it's it's a subtle difference, right? It still comes down to like saving resources for the next generation. It's just kind of about what the dynamic of that being evolutionary beneficial for the person who has decided to not have more babies. <laughs> so um, it's a little it's complicated. I love it. I love that the chimp grandmas stick around for the babies no matter who they are. Yeah, like, yeah it's true. It's, so it's, like, to me. it's like so tender. <laughs> yeah. Well, and like chimps, you know, I feel like um, there's just now starting to be like a lot of backlash to the idea that chimps are like so like violent and aggressive. And it's like, no, actually, they're they can be very tender too. Um, it's not just bonobos who are really nice. But yeah, there's this idea that once a female travels to a new group to start reproducing there, as time goes on, they become increasingly related to the group because 
their babies are having babies. Um, and so it might make sense for the oldest females to stop reproducing um, because as they get older, there's more of a chance that their genes are like already in play in this pool and they should like back off and not compete. Um, so yeah, the like the grandmother hypothesis and this like uh, resource allocation hypothesis are like very closely related. And definitely it's possible um, it's possible that both were in play for humans because um, like researchers have pointed out that in, you know, most of our distant human ancestors, it probably would be common for daughters to move out and join new families. Um, and initially she wouldn't be related to anyone in the group, but then she would have children. And as she got older, more and more of the people in the group would be genetically related to her. So again, there would be uh, the longer you lived, the more you would be putting your own offspring in direct competition with other relatives if you had more kids. And yeah, researchers have pointed out that like they might not be mutually exclusive. And, and that might be why like all human societies have this higher rate of like life post reproduction because both of these are in play. Um, but yeah, research in orcas have shown that when two generations of killer whales in the same group are breeding at the same time, um, calves from the older generation are almost twice as likely to die. So there's definitely evidence that like everything goes better if reproduction is generally happening one generation at a time. And yeah, this this is just so interesting to me because it's so fascinating that like we can understand that menopause is is happening in other species and still like not really be able to come up with a great obvious answer for how it came about or why it persisted, um, which is true for so many human traits. Um, and, you know, I think like talking about evolution is is such a study in like shedding misconceptions about like what it means for a species to evolve or what kind of variables tend to like drive selection. Um, it's all a lot messier than just like have a lot of babies, <laughs> ergo, <laughs> genes. Um, sorry, Richard Dawkins. But um, yeah, that's my story about chimps. They have grandmas too. Uh, <laughs> See, I I picture it now as like chimp grandmas are kind of like overbearing mother-in-laws. Like they're like, okay, my daughters <laughs> are going to be fine. Um, they can go live with their husbands and have babies. But like, I don't trust my sons to have babies. <laughs> so I'm going to stay. Which I feel like I don't know. I'm not. I'm no evolutionary biologist, but someone it's should look into that. That's definitely the vibe with orcas. Um, like, yeah, because orca moms raise their sons forever. They like, yeah, never stop. They never stop. It's, they don't have more like, babies because crazy. they're still raising their their grown up male babies, and then just all of their children. <laughs> yeah, I also just love like the power of like that matriarchy. You know, of just being like we all know this is gonna work out like if you've got the like whenever grandmas are in charge listen no matter what it is if it's a function if it's a home whatever it is whenever grandmas are in charge things go very smoothly so very true yeah all right we're gonna take a quick break but then we'll be back with some more facts this episode is brought to you by jinx the superfood powered dog kibble everyone's been talking about 
see the results for yourself and try their one-month transformation. Within the first few weeks, you'll see how Jinx can help with your dog's energy, mood, and even digestion. And it's all thanks to the high-quality ingredients they use, like organic chicken, Atlantic salmon, and grass-fed beef. Try the one-month transformation today. Find Jinx in your local Walmart. Okay, we're back. And um, Sarah Kylie, tell me about uh, this prime minister. Yeah, okay. This prime cut of minister. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. Puns are coming already. Um, yeah, I'm really excited about this one. Um, so a little background before I dive in. So I live in the Netherlands by some, like, really random tricks of fate. Like, I'm not Dutch. I'm, like, a foot too short to be Dutch. Um, I grew up in America, <laughs> and before I moved here, I'd spent, like, a couple of weeks here. So I don't ha- know more or less anything about Dutch history, um, which makes it really fun to, like, accidentally bump into Dutch history all the time um, <laughs> and hear all about it. And so this is one of those examples. I think this is easily one of the weirdest um, stories from European history, let alone Dutch history. Um, so today's tale is the tragedy of Johan de Witt. Um, so we're going to zoom back in time um, to the 1600s. And so this is when Euro- Europe was mostly run by royal people. Surprise, surprise. But the Netherlands shockingly wasn't. Um, this is when the Netherlands was the Dutch Republic. And um, so Johan, um, so he was born in, I think, like 15, no, maybe like no, 1625-ish. Yeah, I think 1625-ish. And so he was um, the he was from a family that was like a bunch of wealthy merchants. They were living in Dordrecht, which was like one of the big to-do cities in Holland of the time. Now, now it's kind of this cute little like town outside of Rotterdam. It's very cute. But it was a big deal back in the 1600s. And um, so he he was 25. He came to take office as like the pensionary of Dordrecht, which was basically like, you know, the leader of this to do town. And he's just, um, yeah, a young guy. Then Holland is like the big province in the Netherlands. So, you know, that's where Amsterdam and Rotterdam and The Hague are. So it's all he's like he's kind of one of the big guys in town. And there you go. Um, So and. He didn't come up from nothing. He came from a powerful family. He um, studied math and law at Leiden University, which is still there. He got his doctorate in France. So he was like a really fancy person for the 1600s. Um, And by... 1653 when he was 28 he was elected grand pensionary of the states of holland which is kind of like the prime minister so prime minister isn't the perfect like uh but it's it's pretty close and holland was the most powerful province in the dutch republic so he had a ton of power um so like kind of to compare who else was like you know hopping around um king charles was in charge in england louis the great was in charge in france so these are the people that this dude, this 28-year-old dude from Dordrecht is up against. Um, and so let's fast forward two decades. It's 1672, 1672 and it's called um, the disaster year. Um, and the Netherlands was warring with um, <laughs> England. They were warring with France. They were in a fight with two different German cities. So it was kind of a mess. Um, but yeah, so we've got this guy. He's not royal. He's just kind of in charge. Um, And his goals were more or less like get peaceful first off, because obviously um, 
this is wars are expensive and also like yeah there's a lot going on um actually a, a miniature fun fact in here so um i was going through a big pile of just stuff and so one of his like contemporaries one of johan's like i don't know if they were like buddies or just like you know like political similar minds but um he like argued to replace the lion on the dutch coat of arms with just a regular cat to just be like hey (laughs) we're cool with everybody we aren't gonna like i don't know but yeah so there's just it's a weird time in (laughs) in history and um his second goal was kind of like get wealthy holland as autonomous as possible from the other provinces again like so holland is on the coast it's got the major cities in there i mean not that there's not major cities other other places but you know we got amsterdam we got dordrecht we got all these places um so separating it off to what the other provinces were like up to um, was one of his goals and then finally he wanted to disempower the royal princes of orange um so this is the royal house uh that is the netherlands basically um so they were in power right before he came into office and you'll find out (laughs) when they come back um but basically like they have all of these like kind of dynastic ambitious goals you know royal people are like yeah i want to be royal everywhere so um or at least they were in the 1600s. I don't know any royal people now. Um, but back in the day, you know, this is the time where people are like putting their paws out there, trying to get you know different pieces of the puzzle, and that wasn't like really spreading in line. hemophilia. The years, you know, like it just banana stuff. Like we're just coming out of the medieval era. We are doing crazy stuff, and but like this isn't necessarily in line with like what other rich people wanted. So you've kind of got these um, royal people who are like, I want to rule everything, and then you've got rich people that are like, I kind of just want to like mind my business and make money. So <laughs> Johan was kind of with the mind my business and make money side as a merchant. Um, but yeah, so we basically yeah we've have a break in the house of orange with johan this random guy um and so back to the regular scheduled programming we're in the disaster year again called romp um and it was really a messy time because of all the wars and soon um the overthrow but it had its own slogan um i'm not even going to try to say it in dutch because that will be so embarrassing but um translated in english it goes something like the people were irrational the government helpless and the country was beyond salvation so shit has hit the fan basically um in so many words so um besides the fact that the netherlands were at war with everybody um dewitt was really really unpopular um because largely because he wasn't royal um, the Oranges only stopped being the rulers of the Netherlands, like, six years before he took office or something. And that's just in part because the Orange in power, he, like, died all of a sudden. And his son was just a baby. I think his son might have been, like, born after his death. So we've got, like, a royal baby. And, like, that's kind of it. And the people in power in Amsterdam were like, hey, let's, like, keep this open. Let's, like, keep keep things fresh let's see let's see what happens if we just like don't have a state holder um yeah so six years later 28 year old johan is wearing the big hat um so yeah we're in a battle of the rich guys we've got the republican from a wealthy merchant family um versus like the royal house of orange which is a big old deal so we've got um two different editions of rich people fighting <laughs> so um we're in the middle of uh the disaster year it's june 21st and DeWitt gets stabbed. Um, so he's already not doing good. 
and he sticks it out as grand pensionary until August 4th. Um, and then he resigns. And so he's like, okay, I'm done. Um, and he had an older brother, I think, older or younger. They're like two years apart. So they're they're tight. They're really good friends. And um, the people that are loyal to the Oranges called the Oranges, they really hated the brother. Um, so this guy was taken, um, his name's Cornelius. He was taken around the same time that the stabbing happened to a prison in The Hague on arrest for treason. Um, and they basically tortured the heck out of him. This was the law at the time. Like, they just tortured everybody to try to get a confession. Um, yeah, 1600s, wild times. It only gets more wild. Um, and so uh, Cornelius didn't confess, uh, so, but they exiled him anyway, which I guess, I mean, that's not like the worst option. Um, so he gets exiled. And to prepare his brother, Johan is like, okay, we're going to go over there. and I'm going to prepare him for this exile journey that he's about to take. So Johan went to the prison, which was like really close to where he was living in The Hague. So The Hague is where I live, which is so random, obviously. But um, it's <laughs> most people know it about like the international um, crime courts and stuff. But it was a uh, it was puffing back in the day, too. <laughs> um, so there's this in, right downtown in the center of The Hague. There's kind of like a big castle. And then there's a the little prison. And so he's at this little prison downtown. Um and his brother boop 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 hops over there and he was really close to he was living in the hague anyway so it's like super easy just pops over um but alas there's a civic militia of people from the hague that are mad and ready to get him so um both brothers get shot and then they just get left kind of to a mob of uh orange supporters and basically um the said mob then hangs up their naked mutilated bodies on like a more or less like a gallows in a square in the hague right by right by the prison um and then the freakiest bit the mob roasted and ate their livers in a quote-unquote cannibalistic frenzy so um yep not, oh not very popular guys um but yeah within a few days um a 22 year old william the third or william orange the baby from before um he becomes the stat holder of holland zealand utrecht gelders and overriesel um, and he actually goes on to being quite famous himself. Uh, 17 years later, he becomes the King of England, um, Scotland and Ireland, ruling along his cousin wife, Mary. Um, so they are William and Mary, like the school. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. So so that's the baby. <laughs> that's the baby. They're the only co-rulers of, uh, you know, Great Britain. Um, and ironically, they signed this Bill of Rights, which, quote unquote, according to like the I was on a page about um like the palaces in the UK. I went on a, a long journey through Google today. Um, but basically it gave power to parliament and began the process of creating a democracy that we know today in Britain and quote unquote, never would a monarch be able to rule with power unchecked. So I just think that's a little bit ironic um, <laughs> that he took down, well, I guess, I don't know how much of a role he had in the liver eating of of all of it, but I mean, they took right. down the Republican. He was a baby at the time, right? He's just he a baby. Was, he's 22, so he was. I mean, if he was oh. an orca, he okay. would be a baby. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> right. Like so, uh, but um, but yeah. So that's the Dutch tale of Eat the Rich. Um, and for what it's worth, the current king of the Netherlands, there still is a king of the Netherlands. Um, he's another orange guy. His name's Willem Alexander. So we've got another orange William. He is the king right now. Sometimes he lives in The Hague. Sometimes he lives other places. Um, and if you're ever curious about where this like cannibalistic frenzy took place, it's like 
right downtown and there's like a beautiful little square that I've been going to eat ice cream probably like I probably walked by this like a hundred times I lived here for a year and I walked by this a hundred times um but yeah it's a beautiful little square and they have little like marketplaces sometimes there um yeah and it's a 20 minute walk from where I'm sitting right now but that is where the Dutch ate their prime minister because they would rather have a king and they got a king again and it's still happening so that's that's my story (laughs) that's incredible they literally ate the rich they did it (laughs) it's just yeah they 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 really did but but also they ate the rich to put a king back on the throne that's a crazy bit i'm like what win some you lose some (laughs) yeah like i guess it was just a confusing time Like, it, was, yeah, it, was a, it was a confusing time to be Dutch. Um, I think it's just a confusing time to be. I mean, my gosh. Yeah, yeah. Like, there's not a lot of information yeah. probably being shared. You're just like living your Dutch life and you're like, you know what? Cheese is more expensive than it used to be. It's, it must be this guy's fault. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. Yeah. Well, it reminds me of um, the story I did for a live show years ago about historical balloon riots which remains one of my like favorite stories that I've ever researched for weirdest things so go back and listen if you haven't heard it before folks uh because I started out talking about one balloon riot and I uncovered I think if I remember correctly two more including one that like I had like never heard anyone else talk about anyway but it's like there were these riots that happened because there was so such a big wealth disparity and rich people started just going up in hot air balloons and so anytime they were unfortunate enough to like have to land in um a a working class area people were like furious they they like tore the balloons apart they went wild and of course you know the papers were all like what what could have incited this this rage? <laughs> like people were starving, and rich like, people I'm just like hungry. floated down out of the sky, like with with a picnic in their in their hot air balloon. Oh so yeah, um, it's really mysterious. And I mean, now they're going up to space. Like you know, now it's, it's like true. they're going up to space. So they're like, there's no way we can float back down to any angry like regular people. <laughs> so they're that's true. They've really cracked it. Um, <laughs> all right. We're going to take one more break and then we'll be back with one more fact. Okay, we're back. And um, let's talk about some some taxidermied birds, please. Yes. So, um my story also starts in the past. It starts in 1790 with um, a man named John Edmundstone, who was born on a timber plantation in Demerara, which is in Guyana, which is in South America. And at this time, it was a British colony. And this plantation was owned by a Scotsman named Charles Edmundstone. And as John was an enslaved person, we don't really have a ton of records um, of his birth name or a lot of information about his early life. Um, Very little is known. And the earliest documentation we have is when he met um, another guy named Charles, Charles Waterton. 
So it gets a bit confusing. There's many Charles. There's two Charleses <laughs> in this story. <laughs> I love the so, 1700s. Yeah, so it's going to be, this is going to be some, you've got to track the Charleses, everybody. So Charles Waterton was friends with Charles Edmundstone and later became his son-in-law. And Charles Waterton was this eccentric naturalist who was known for making some really lifelike taxidermy and also some really weird, bizarre taxidermy. Um, some of my favorite pieces that Charles Waterton did, um, he had this technique where he just used a couple of wires and had an otherwise like hollow structure inside of animals. So if you put these like taxidermy mounts in an x-ray, they're just like, oh my gosh, it's hollow. Um, there's a couple wires in there, but somehow the animal skin has kept its shape. He was also known for developing this new method of preserving bird skins using mercuric chloride, which was a very fast-acting fast acting fixative, and it stopped the animal's tissues from decaying. And his really weird taxidermy, um, he made these like, strange hybrid creatures in these like intricate situations. And by hybrid, I mean like he would get parts of different animals, like um, you know, birds, reptiles, mammals, and just like put them all together to make some some weird little thing. And um, <laughs> he made a bunch of these like weird little guys, as I'll just call them. They're just like these weird little guys in these Aww. like strange poses. And they had they were in these like tableaus. And one of them was called John Bull and the National Debt. So it's like social commentary. Um, <laughs> you know? I love that. Yeah. That is hilarious. Yeah. And so he also made, um, you know, this is Charles Waterton again. He also made... Um, these uh, like uncanny like humanoid things from like various animal butts. So his work really spanned a lot of styles. And so I'm mentioning that to just kind of mention Charles Waterton's kind of, um, uh, I guess, his accomplishments in taxidermy from the very scientific to the very bizarre. And it's just an interesting example of someone just on a side note whose mind was just as deep into science as it was in like art and humor and just like the twisted things that the mind can do, I guess. Um, but anyhow, <laughs> around 1812, Charles Waterton um, began gathering and studying specimens from the Guyanese jungle. So this is an era where studying animals meant going into their habitat, making observations, and then collecting specimens to preserve and study inside and out. And so our attitudes and practices have changed really dramatically. So this is not like, you know, modern taxidermists are not going into the wild and just like grabbing every animal they can. That's very, very, uh, very much not what we do now. But this is, again, the early 1800s. Um, a lot of stuff was messed up back then. So Waterton needed to preserve as many examples of birds as possible and other animals too, but I really care about birds. So I'm going to be talking about birds. Um, <laughs> so there are over or around like 700, 780, 785, like around that number, um, there are a lot of birds in Guyana. So one person can't do this all themselves. So he taught John Edmundstone how to prepare these birds. Now, Waterton described John Edmundstone as someone who did really good work, but also described him as being very difficult and saying it required a lot of time and patience to, to teach him anything. But later on, Darwin and Edmund Stone, um, Darwin and John Edmund Stone had an encounter and Darwin's accounts of John Edmund Stone are very much the opposite. So I will let you see who you want to, <laughs> who you want to uh, believe <laughs> whose account you're gonna take into consideration. Um, and I'll also say, as someone who has taught taxidermy to 
like lots and lots of people, it's not going to be easy for anyone to learn. And of course, like (laughs) teaching something that complex, like, yes, it's going to require some patience. And we have to remember the conditions John Edmundstone was learning under were definitely not anywhere near comfortable or even basically humane. I mean, he was contending with the harsh conditions and the dehumanization that comes with being an enslaved person on top of just the harsh conditions of being in the field and like doing this work in the jungles mm. and the various, uh, you know, in nature, in Guyana. He wasn't in like an air-conditioned, climate-controlled studio or something. He was, you know, doing this work outside and under these like just numerous, like numerous, numerous, like con- difficult conditions. Um, so... Going on with John Edmondson's story, um, accounts vary for when John officially got his freedom. Um, The Slave Trade Act of 1807 made slavery illegal in the British Empire and abolishment took place officially in 1834. Um, So in 1817, Charles Edmondstone returned to Scotland and John came with him. So we don't know if John was already emancipated when he arrived, but he would have automatically been so upon just entering Scotland. So at first, John Edmundstone lived in Glasgow, but by 1824, he settled in Edinburgh, making a living for himself, doing taxidermy, which he had learned from Charles Waterton, who was Charles (laughs) Edmundstone's friend, his weird friend. So <laughs> that's like Icon. that's like the that's like the the connection here. There's so many like all of these people are so there's like all of that connection. Yeah. So he was making a living for for himself, working for the University of Edinburgh's um, Zoological Museum, and he also taught taxidermy classes to students at the nearby Edinburgh University. And so at that time, taxidermy was a really lucrative business, especially you know with museums collecting um, with schools and it was just seen as such a such an important part of scientific research and education and it was also just um fashionable in life like personally fashionable people would collect taxidermy it's very much in in vogue at the time so john found his skills were very very much in demand so one of the students that signed up for john edmundstone's classes was a 16 year old charles darwin so hey. yeah so it's weird to think about Charles Darwin being 16 I don't know why I, like obviously I know he had a childhood but it's just never occurred to me that he was once an awkward teenager no like bopping around Scotland <laughs> yeah. like with a with a pimple <laughs> yeah that's crazy I think he just always looked the same like that's just what I like there's just some people I can't like you said I cannot picture Darwin like being little like you know I just am like oh he came out like that like I don't know he came out with the beard and like the glasses it's cool (laughs) but yeah so so anyhow so he came to university to study medicine in 1825 but he wasn't really feeling it um he didn't really have a passion for medicine um Darwin's lodgings were at 11 Lothian Street and John Edmundstone's studio was at 37 Lothian Street so the they were just even in proximity, really, really close. So Darwin went to Edmundstone for private lessons. And in a letter to his sister, it seems like Price was the initial motivator. Like, I just want to do this hobby and it's not too much. So I'm just going to do it. And this letter, he says, I'm going to learn to stuff birds. It has the recommendation of cheapness, if nothing else. So from that, I. <laughs> All right. Yeah. 
so from that, I love that for him. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's like from that I'm kind of inferring like, all right, let me just try this on a whim. It's like, like, why the heck not? So Darwin later mentioned in his autobiography, a man lived in Edinburgh who had traveled with Waterton and gained his livelihood stuffing birds, which he did excellently. He gave me lessons for payment, and I used often to sit with him, for he was a very pleasant and intelligent man. So he got along really well with John Edmundstone. And, you know, even a single taxidermy class is a long commitment of time. You end up learning a lot about, obviously, the process of taxidermy. But since it's such a long process, you're also going to be learning a lot about the people you are around because, you know, as humans, we're all we're uh-huh. going to talk to each other. So it makes sense that in their many sessions together, John spoke about the beauty of Guyana's rainforest, the amazing birds, um, all the lush flora and fauna. And this is what sparked Darwin's interest in the natural world and especially to explore the tropics. And five years later, Darwin secured a spot on the HMS Beagle as the ship's naturalist. And thanks to Edmund Stone's teachings, you know, this were these classes were um, I think it was documented that he took like over 40 classes with Edmund Stone. Um, they were one guinea each. So um, 40 guineas for uh, this life changing course of of classes. So on the Beagle, thanks to Edmund Stone's teaching, he was really well equipped with the skills to preserve all of these specimens. And those taxidermy skills would be really invaluable because they gave us the literal in-the-flesh evidence to help Darwin prove his theory of evolution by natural selection, as laid out in that very, very famous book, The Origin of Species. And there are almost 500 of these specimens um, that were that were collected, that were bird skins, and nearly 200 of them are still at the Natural History Museum in the UK. And although the finches are the most like popular and charismatic, and like the they're like the uh, they're the cool girls, like that's like the one that we all know of. Um, a lot of scientists say that it was the mockingbirds that he collected on that trip that were the ones that really sparked him to formulate the thoughts on evolution. Um, but we love the finches, so but we'll also have to show love to those to those mockingbirds too. And um, we can't be sure that Darwin prepared all the bird skins himself because specimen preparation was like a shared and collective thing. But, you know, we definitely know that he learned specimen prep from from Edmund Stone and, and passed that passed that down and all around. Another part of like Edmund Stone and Darwin's um, interactions and story that is pretty cool is like aside from their talks of nature, we can also kind of speculate that Evanstone probably spoke to Darwin about his horrifying experiences of being an enslaved person. And that may have influenced Darwin. Um, he was less racist than other scientists of his time because um, he held ab- abolitionist views. And we also know from his journals from the Beagle that Darwin didn't condone the cruel acts that some of his, his colleagues engaged in. And um, he also has this note on a visit with Charles, like after a visit with Charles Waterton um, in 1845, he described Waterton, who was the, Waterton is the guy who taught Edmund Stone again. All these people, (laughs) all these connections, I want to make sure they're kind of clear. So he described Waterton as the strangest mixture of extreme kindness, harshness, and bigotry that I ever saw. So Wow, Darwin just what a way with what a man. What clearly, a man. <laughs> yeah. So this is sort of like the like the web between all of these people is just it just contains so much. 
And after 1843, most traces of John Ebenstone and any of his um, any of his possible family, a lot of that disappears. And there are, again, very few details of his later life, too. And a lot of what we even know about John Edmundstone's life comes from anecdotes in Darwin's journals and um, in Darwin's biography. Um, we know he was still living in Edinburgh up to 1833, but it's also not known like where he was laid to rest or anything after his death. In 2009, there was a plaque unveiled to commemorate John Edmundstone um, on Lothi- Lothian Street. Lothian Street, I hope I'm saying that right. Um, there was a plaque that was unveiled um, not too far from a plaque that honors Darwin, although that plaque has disappeared. Um, no one knows where it is. All I was able to find were a couple of tweets of people searching for the plaque. So if there are any listeners out there, you can help find this plaque. It's been it's been a while, but maybe we can uncover this plaque. It was made by the Wedgwood Company in the style of their anti-slavery porcelain brooches. So you know, that it's, it's a shame that plaque is missing. The Darwin plaque is still there. The Edmundstone plaque. Let's find it. And yeah, I mean, Ed- Edmundstone's story is like just really remarkable to me for a lot of reasons. Um, you know, just the connections that passed the skill of taxidermy to him and how he passed it to Charles Darwin. There's also the fact that everyone knows who Darwin is and no one knows who John Edmundstone is. Hopefully this this changes that. And there's also just, I mean, you were saying this before, um, Rachel, that science is just messy sometimes. Like it doesn't exist in this sanitized <laughs> bubble. And, you know, we can always say, yes, data is objective, blah, blah, blah. But the world is not like our world is so, you know, it's so messy. There's all these connections to social, political, cultural, artistic, just all of these influences. So, you know, it's so connected to um, humanity. And then the other reason Edmund Stone's story really resonates with me is, um, you know, as a woman of color in this field, although a lot has changed since the 1800s, it, you know, it could just be a struggle to be a minoritized or racialized person in this field. And so any kind of representation that's there, any historical figure that's there, I just want to share their story um, as they've, you know, people like Edmund Stone have, have paid the way for folks like me and his work has had such a huge impact and influence and hopefully his story isn't forgotten for long that was amazing thank you <laughs> yeah thank i love you. that what okay where when is the series coming out like it has y'all, y'all should produce it yeah y'all should produce it y'all should make this we got uh, scotland yeah we got people of color and science it's got it's everything, got everything okay. right yeah somebody somebody get on this i know we should we can't like maybe pop side can like uh message like Jordan Peele or someone to get in here and like you know produce <laughs> produce the heck out of this thing like, I am here for it uh, man I I wish I could message Jordan Peele <laughs> like, hi. Um, just generally yeah it's just true uh right yeah just hello uh I love your movies you scare me a little <laughs> that mean um but uh yes no I agree like where is the miniseries on this I'm I'm ready for it I love it. And yeah, I love um, it's so great, you know, because for so many um, people who were doing really interesting things, you know, in science and in art and just in their lives who weren't uh, the people writing the history books and the people being written down in history books, like often there are these these like holes in 
uh, what we know about them. And I love that like it could have been and probably in a lot of cases of people who do have awesome stories that we don't know about, like the one remaining anecdote we have of them is this uh, this person who treated them as chattel being like, they were really obstinate. What was up with that? So I love that, you know, while Charles Darwin was not a perfect man, I love that he's in here with let with letters being like, this dude was awesome. I love yes. how good he was at stuffing birds. He was a great conversationalist. So it's just like such a, um, it's, it's so like serendipitous that, <laughs> that we have that um, on the record. Um, that's really cool. Well, we don't have to pick what the weirdest thing we learned this week was because I don't do that anymore. <laughs> but um, I loved all of the stories today. Sarah Kylie, I realized that I forgot to ask you um, about the cool new publication you're working on. I would love for you to tell listeners about that before we sign off. Yeah. Hello again. Um, so I am no longer <laughs> the news editor at Popular Science Frowny Face, but I am in a new endeavor. Um, I'm now the associate editor at um, 15C, which is this very cool um, climate publication that's led by um, two other like pop sci legends. We've got Joe and Karen who have both done their time um and so basically uh <laughs> we are right now a newsletter we're working on a couple a couple other things so stay posted but sign up for the newsletter um so it's basically talking about how we can like actually turn our behavior into impact and you know finding some of the silver linings and what can be like a really really tough um constant news cycle of what we're doing wrong about climate change and you know finding ways that we can actually you know do something and power this energy that we all have into doing something that matters so y'all sign up you'll see me talking about not dutch history but other cool stuff occasionally so yeah amazing that's so awesome um, yeah we will we'll throw a link to that into the show notes along with uh jess's twitch my Substack, by Patreon, all the ways you can find us. And um, Divya, thank you so much for coming on the show. And would you please remind listeners where they can see uh, your awesome taxidermy work and maybe uh, link up with you for classes since you did mention that you you teach the art of uh, bird stuffing, as it were. I do. So, well, thank you all for for having me on first. It's, this is such an amazing opportunity to share to share the story with you all. And um, yeah, folks can find me um, on Instagram as Gotham Taxidermy. Um, my website is GothamTaxidermy.com, uh, G-O-T-H-A-M, and then Taxidermy. And um, yeah, that's where you'll find all the information about my classes and my work and, and yeah, and anything else. Amazing. The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week is produced by all of our hosts, including me, Rachel Faltman, along with Jess Bodie, who also serves as our audio engineer and editor extraordinaire. Our theme music is by Billy Cadden. Our logo is by Katie Belloff. If you have questions, suggestions, or weird stories to share, tweet us at weirdest underscore thing. Thanks for listening, weirdos.